you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 51 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you again as always. And you will recall last week we completed part two of our interview with Mr Justice Gerard Hogan of the Supreme Court, where we discussed the 50th anniversary of the McGee case and other related case. It was a great interview and really wonderful stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, and in part two, for anybody who hasn't listened to it yet, we expanded out into American jurisprudence, the Norris case as well, Rowan Wade and Dobbs, which overturned Rowan Wade. So I think it's definitely one for, for one for the archives. I know, it was a really far-reaching interview. It was really, really good. And actually, before we go today, you want to make a little announcement about what's upcoming on the Fifth Court. That's right, because we're very soon going to be discussing sports arbitration. But before then, uh, listeners who are interested in sports arbitration or sports law generally should know that there's going to be a sports law Bar Association event in the Distillery Building on Church Street um, entitled Fair Play, Fair Start. That's on the 1st of December and anybody who's interested should look at the Law Library website. Okay, and we have an interview coming up with two of our leading sports arbitrators. It's going to be fantastic, folks. If you're into sports law at all, tune in for those interviews. They're great, really, really good. Well, today we are straying slightly outside the bounds of what we normally do on this legal podcast However, loyal listeners will know that we recently went to the Electric Picnic. Mark, am I saying that again? You did indeed, yes, the, the, electric we the Electric Picnic. picnic. We, were, we were performing, <laughs> okay. we were there alongside the Wolf Tones. Yeah. And there we interviewed Guardian Ireland correspondent Rory Carroll about his excellent book, Killing Thatcher. Well, we're in sort of similar territory on this occasion because we're going to be joined by well-known Irish Times journalist Ronan McCreevy, who along with his fellow journalist Tommy Conan, another Leitrim man, have written about the the kidnapping of Don Tidy, which happened 40 years ago this month. And it's a fascinating story and very interesting legal angles as well. It ended up going before the Special Criminal Court, those accused of. And then prior to that, you love this, there was all those issues about evidence, whether evidence was admissible or not. Mm. But it is a fascinating social history about, you know, a, a very difficult time, I think, in recent Irish history. Yeah, and one which many of us will remember. So stay tuned and we'll have Ronan shortly. But first, we're going to take a look at three cases from the Decisis website that you have identified. Case number one. In this case, a property was occupied on foot of an agreement for use as a guest house. However, the occupier made modifications to the property in order to let it out as refugee accommodation. The owner sought interlocutory relief. This is the case of Maldua Limited versus Walton. And it is a high court decision of Judge Liam Kennedy. Yeah. So, as you said, this is a property that was let out initially as a, as a guest house. I think there may have been a lease license issue, but that's not, not central to the case. But what happened was that the occupier adapted it for refugee accommodation and that adapted it in terms of sort of removing walls in the house. Not only did they not have planning permission, they didn't have permission from the, from the owner of the property to make these modifications. So needless to say, the, uh, the owner wasn't very happy with this and sought interlocutory uh, relief to remove them from the property. But the issue, when it came before the court, the judge said, well, look, if I exclude these people, not only are the lessees themselves living in the property, but there are 36 refugees living there. And if I turf them out, they'll have nowhere, nowhere to live. 
And so he said that if they would make the appropriate undertakings, various undertakings to the court, that he wouldn't grant the interlocutory relief. Okay, so a very sensible decision, I suppose. That's the way to look at it. I mean, obviously, you know, 32 refugees being housed. So that was a factor that he had to take into account. Okay, let's move on to case number two. Proceedings involving a family company were settled and there was one final payment of 10 million due to the plaintiff. The company was then restructured and the plaintiff argued that this triggered the final payment. This is the case of Re Edmund P. Harty and Company Limited are Harty versus Harty, I think. Uh, And again, it's a decision of Mr. Justice Liam Kennedy. Yeah. So this is, an, in fact, it was an unlimited company and it specialised in the production of automatic milking parlour equipment. And it was clearly a very valuable company because there there had been a previous dispute among the family members and the plaintiff had agreed a payout of 44 million euro for his share in the company. And he'd got all of it except for the last 10 million, which wasn't due to be paid for some time. But there was a clause that said that if the company was sold, that triggered the final payment. Now, the company wasn't technically sold, but it was restructured in such a way that the company didn't retain the same level of capital assets that it had previously. And he said, well, that's counted as a sale. The court agreed with him. Okay, so that that was a triggering mechanism. It was a triggering mechanism that that effectively was a sale of the company such that he was entitled to his last 10 million. Okay. So I don't think he'll starve. No, he won't starve. I don't think he'll starve at all. Um, No, very interesting case. Okay, case number three. Finally, we look at a case where a borrower had been evicted by a mortgagee, but then re-entered the property and the mortgagee sought interlocutory relief. And this is also, this is the case of Mars Capital Finance Limited, DAC versus Quinn. And it's also a decision of Mr. Justice Kennedy. Was there any other judges judges sitting this week, Mark? I think he was very busy that week, yeah. Um, (laughs) He certainly was very busy this week, but anyway. So, so, the, um, it was, uh, there had been an order for possession in the circuit court and this gave rise to a physical eviction of the mortgagor. I think she actually had to be physically removed and was resi- quite resistant. She then re-entered the property and they sought injunctive relief to remove her. And she tried to say that the eviction had been unlawful and the court said no, that, 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 that although obviously it's a very difficult circumstance to remove somebody from their house, that all of the proper procedures have been followed and so the eviction was both appropriate and lawful. Okay, very interesting. Okay, back shortly with Ronan McCreevy. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, so it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio an old pal of mine, Ronan McGreevy. Ronan, we go way back to the early 90s, oh God, UCG. Yeah, yeah. Back there uh, in the Napoleon. You were a lot era, older yeah. than me, though. You were a year ahead of me in a diploma in journalism. That's remember right, that? Yeah, in the yeah. love shack at the back of UCG. That's Do you remember right, that? Yeah, God almighty. It's Those not there the anymore. It's all, uh, it's all, all fancy very, now. Uh, fancy. That's where I met Tommy, actually, who's the co-author yes. of my book. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's we. So we, Tommy was your classmate as well, wasn't that right? Yeah, And you were two Leitrim boys taking on the world. That's well. So to speak. (laughs) In our own heads, maybe. (laughs) You have written a fascinating book, the two of you, Ronan. And we're we're kind of, as I said in the intro, we're pushing the boundaries a little bit because this is a kind of a legal podcast. But we have ventured into stories like this that were Mm -hmm. very significant in the history of Ireland and strongly, you know, explore legal themes and 
This was all about law and order in the 1980s. Okay, let's go back. Okay, it's 1983. It's almost 40 years ago. I think it's just later this month will be the 40th anniversary of Don Tidy's kidnapping. Resident in Rathfarnham in the foothills of the Dublin mountains. And one day he was trying to drop his daughter to school and things all changed, Ronan. Yes, well, he was living in Woodtown at that time, which is a an exclusive cul-de-sac in the Dublin mountains. He was driving his daughter, Susan, to Alexandra College. Uh, he was going on to work himself. His son, Alistair, was following in the car behind. Alistair was working with Don. Don was then the uh, managing director and chairman of Quinsworth. Alistair was working with them at the time. A couple of hundred yards from his house, he saw Garda approach him. He noticed that the Garda had his uh, hat on, skew-wise. Don is quite a stickler for, for good dress. Don saw up ahead of him a checkpoint, a guard, what he thought was a guard at the checkpoint. He let down uh, the window to speak to the guard and the guard pointed a pistol in his face and forced him out of the car, forced his daughter out of the car and forced Alistair out of his car. And then they uh, took Don Tidy uh, in another car, uh, drove him to a rendezvous point in Maynooth where he was transferred to a Cumber van and then to a car and he was kept kidnapped in Dorada Wood outside Ballinamore for the next 23 days. Okay. And eventually then the, the, a party, the Irish army and the guards together came upon the site where he was held and chaos ensued. And we're going to talk about that. And he emerged, you know, safe and sound. But sadly, a soldier and a guard, the recruit were killed in, in what happened on that occasion. Let's go back, though, to put it in context in 1983. Mm-hmm. We had a previous guest in here, who t- Tim Ryan, who talked about um, the the Kenny report and why the Kenny report was, wasn't implemented. But he made the point in the course of that interview that, People don't seem to realise the pressure that was put on the domestic government in this country at the time due to the ongoing problems associated with the Troubles. Now, the 1980s were a particularly violent period during the, the, the course of the Troubles, and it had a major impact in the South. And in the year 1983, there had already been the Shergar kidnapping, for yes, example. Yes, you know? yeah. yeah. And so, so there, was, there was a lot of pressure on the state authorities coming from, let's say, subversives from the north. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I think this is uh, a subject that is underexplored nowadays, is the impact of the Troubles on the south. Um, most of the coverage is obviously centred on the north, where which was the sort of main locus of, of, of the activity. But the south was profoundly affected in many, many different ways. Over 100 people were killed in the south during the Troubles. But there was also the huge financial costs of the Troubles to this part of Ireland. We were spending three times what the British were spending uh, per capita on security uh, between the Gardaí and the army. At one stage it was taking uh, one euro and seven uh, was the cost of security in the state. And it was a very real threat uh, which has been kind of forgotten about now from violent republicanism. Uh, You're talking about the INLA and the provisional IRA, although of course um, loyalist paramilitaries targeted the South as well, most notably the Dublin Monaghan bombing, but they were never intent on overthrowing the state, whereas the stated aim of the provisional IRA and the INLA was the overthrow of this state, along with the overthrow of the northern state as well. So there was a huge amount of subversion at that time. I mean, in 19, just in take the year 1983, there was the kidnapping of Shergar. There was the attempted kidnapping of Galen Weston. There was the shooting, uh, the fatal injury of uh, the 
prison officer, um, Brian Stack. You had an attempt to flood the South with counterfeit money on the part of the provisional IRA because they were trying to raise money. Also, there were countless bank robberies and armed robberies carried out by Republicans in the 70s and 80s. And all of it led to a situation whereby, unlike today, Ireland was sort of an international pariah in terms of economic um, investment. Uh, I remember even a couple of weeks ago, I heard Bertie Ahern say that when you went to Silicon Valley or into the United States to look for overseas investors, they just thought Ireland, that's where the troubles are. Yes. They didn't distinguish between the two places. And the notion of kidnapping as, you know, as a, as a, as a practice, I suppose, for the provisional IRA and republicanism generally. I mean, it goes back to obviously Tita Herrema in the, in the mid 1970s. And we're talking to you now shortly after the sad passing of Ben Dunn. That's right. Uh, in 1981. So, I mean, it was something that was used by republicanism as a way of of generating funds. Initially, they were into bank robberies, but mechanisms and techniques had been put in place to stop those and greater security had been applied to to banks within the jurisdiction. So, kidnapping was an alternative way of trying to raise funds. Absolutely. Well, look, Probably the most infamous example was Thomas Niedemeyer, who was kidnapped in Belfast in 1972. And there's a fantastic documentary about how um, his wife, two daughters and his son-in-law took their own lives as a result of what happened in 1972. Of course, you had the, the kidnapping of Theodore Herman in 1975. Prior to that, you had the kidnapping of Lord and Lady Donnamore, which was an incident which is kind of forgotten about now. Then you had Shargar. Then you had Ben, sorry, Ben Dunn was in 1981 and the allegation is that Ben Dunn Sr. paid a ransom. Uh, this is from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Ben Dunn said that himself, that he reckons a, a ransom had been paid. Um, the IRA are short of money in 1983 and the, uh, the number of bank robberies that are happening in the state is falling off a cliff because... Uh, of the activities of the IRA, the security escorts for cash deposits are introduced in the early 1980s. You have CCTV, you have alarms, you have so on. And basically the number of bank robberies decreases by half between 80, 81 and 82 and then almost ends in 1983. So the IRA have to find alternative means of financing. And another significant event that occurred in 1983 was the Mays breakout. And that was to have a very important, play a very important role in this story. Yes, well, in September 1983, the largest uh, breakout since the Second World War, prisoners occurred in the maze. Prison 38 uh, IRA prisoners managed to break out of the maze. 19 of them were apprehended within a couple of days, but another 19 of them were on the run for a long time afterwards. About a dozen of them, so we believe, uh, ended up in Leitrim as guests of John Joe McGurl, who was the yes. uh, vice vice uh, chairman of Sinn Féin, one of the founders of the Provisional IRA. He had uh, a network of safe houses uh, outside Baltimore in the sort of hinterland area, which was a strongly Republican area. And the best estimate is between 11 and 12 of them ended up there. We know this for a fact because Jerry Kelly has it in his own book that uh, himself and Dermot Finucane, who was the brother of Pat Finucane, were... Uh, were kept there. Jerry Adams has come down to Leitrim several times and spoken about the fact that John Joe McGurl had put up quite a few of the um, maze escapees. Yeah, okay. And so this story, let's go back to the Don Tidy, specifically to the Don Tidy kidnapping. So after he was taken in Rathfarnham in the foothills of the Dublin yeah. Mountains, as you say, and from Woodtown, he was then brought initially to Kildare, but then very quickly he ended up in Leitrim. Isn't that the case? We know that subsequently. Yeah, well, he, he estimates himself. Obviously, he was... 
By this stage, he had been subject to almost complete sensory deprivation. He was, um, his ears were bandaged and his there was a blindfold on his eyes. But he reckons that on the night of the 24th of November 1983, which is basically the, the, the night, that he, the day that he had been captured, he was taken to a place, he doesn't know where, we now know it to be Dorada Wood, and that's where he remained for the next 23 days. Now, to go back to, you're wondering what this has all got to do with the May's prison escape. Well, the allegation is that it was the the May's prison four May's prison escapees who were responsible for holding him there for uh, the duration of his time and also for the incidents which occurred uh, when he was rescued. Now you talk about the figure of John Joe McGurl who served was at one stage I think back in 1957 was elected to the Doyle That's right. was you know involved in the border campaign back in the day in the late yeah. 50s early 60s and then when the split came went with the provisionals and was a founding member of the provisional yes, IRA that's right. and was very active yes. and he seemed to have a network of safe houses for various people for the people who came out of the maze they ultimately ended up in, in Leitrim and were looked after locally in a very rural very rural part of Ireland will you describe how rural this is? Well the shorthand for the the tidy kidnapping was that it occurred in Ballinamore, but actually it didn't. It occurred in a place called Coralehan, which is five miles outside Ballinamore, but a place you wouldn't find unless you were really going there. I mean, you wouldn't have a reason to pass through it, for instance. And uh, there's a church there called Coralehan Church, and then there's about another mile down the road from that. There are a whole network of of forests in that area um, at the time they were pretty new forests um, because the go- successive governments had thought that Leitrim was only good for forestry so um, he, he ended up uh, in a very isolated place um, that had been prepared in advance it's important to state that so they were expecting um, to, to, to kidnap somebody and um it's not a place you would have found in a month of Sundays unless you were a local. When you say he was uh, blindfolded and had his ears bound, yeah. bound and was kept yeah. in a wood, was he put in slightly more comfort when he arrived in in Leitrim or was he effectively in in similar position for most of his time there? The conditions he endured were unimaginable. He was bound hand and foot and chained to a tree for 23 days. At night, he was basically put into a hole in the ground, a depression in the ground, which had tarpaulin over it, and the water would seep in through the through the plastic, and, and he knew it was balanced on his nose. He says, in all his time, the 23 days he was there, he never saw the place where he was kept. Um, there was a couple of times when he had his blindfold taken off. Once when there was a photograph taken of him for the Evening Herald newspaper to prove that he was still alive. But for me, what he endured was just shocking, really. And um, and talking about the blindfolding, crucially, when, when ultimately this matter comes to the Special Criminal Court down the line yes. and he gives evidence, he had to come out and say, I couldn't, he couldn't identify any of the people who had, you know, held him hostage in Dorado Wood. Isn't that the case? Well, it's interesting. It was, um, he and I had a conversation about um, about all of this. And originally he said that he wouldn't know whether the person in the dock at that time was Big McFarlane had been at Dorado Woods or not. But then he changed his mind. He says he couldn't know. And he couldn't know because he never saw the people who had captured him. In fact, he never had an, an opportunity to see them here, he, he says that they have border accents, northern accents, but, you know, that's hardly, you know, <laughs> narrowing it down. So 
No, he never saw he never saw any of the people who uh, kidnapped him. He said when he attended the trial of Bick McFarlane, the man in the dock was a stranger. And um, before we get on to the trial, I mean, obviously, as Peter said, there was a, a very chaotic release um, operation by the Guardi and the the army. Could you just briefly outline what happened there? Yes, well, on the uh, afternoon of the 16th of December 1983, a party known as Rudolph Five, uh, there were 10 search parties named Rudolph One to Ten because of the, it was coming up close to Christmas. There's about 25 men involved. Um, they came across the hideout in the middle of Dorada Wood and um, one of the recruit guardy who was involved uh, called out to two men they could see in a clearing who were... Um, wearing army fatigues and uh, had weapons, were cleaning their weapons. Um, you know, who are you? Well, they didn't get a response. And then suddenly the kidnappers uh, opened up with semi-automatic uh, rifles and killed Private Patrick Kelly and uh, Rukukar the Gary Sheehan. They then uh, detonated a stun grenade and used the sort of chaos to escape the woods, taking with them seven security Irish security force personnel, Gardaí and soldiers hostage. They marched them across a field, uh, told them to keep walking out onto a road and don't look round. They then doubled back, got into a car that had the key in the ignition and uh, one of the kidnappers got into the boot of the car. They started firing indiscriminately at Gardaí uh, and army personnel as they drove down the road. Um, they hit, uh, they shot the Detective Sergeant Tony Keller, who shot him both legs. He survived. They almost shot Don Tidy as well, who at this stage had made his own escape and um, was was found himself in the path of, of the people who had kidnapped him. Eventually, they were stopped at a checkpoint. There was a, an exchange of gunfire and they jumped into a field and disappeared into a huge plantation on the Cavan Leitrim border and were never seen again. A slightly controversial aspect of this, Ronan, was the involvement of recruit Gardaí. Gardaí who were training in Templemore, you know, they needed a lot of personnel, obviously, to comb this huge yeah, area of yeah. County Leitrim, difficult terrain, woodland, boggy woodland. This is in the middle of winter. I mean, it was really, really challenging. And they brought all these young trainee Gardaí up. Was that appropriate? Well, that's the that's, that's debate that has been going on since that day. Um, there were 98 recruits in total um, who were involved. They were involved, A, because they were young and fit and the ter- they were able to cover a lot of t- terrain. And two, they were enthusiastic, but they'd only been there three months. And there was there's a school of thought that says that it was no place to, to bring naive, basically, recruit Gardaí. But then the counter-argument to that is that Private Patrick Kelly was an experienced soldier uh, who had had done three tours, two tours of Lebanon, one of Cyprus, and he was armed and he got killed as well. So there was no, I think really hindsight is, is a wonderful thing, but I, all I can tell you is that the people that we spoke to in relation to the book who were there have no regrets about being there. The nation went into mourning after the death of these two individuals right. and huge funerals, huge funerals in yes. Mullang- was it Mullingar. Well, it was in, in Westmead. Moat, Moat, Moat and, and Westmead and, 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 and Carrick Macross. Yes, that's right, yeah. And I mean, the, the, the outpouring of grief and I mean, the state was shocked really by what had happened, you know, and that servants of the state had been attacked in such a way and had been killed in such an indiscriminate firing, etc. 
Well, it was a, it was a shocking event in the troubles when you think about it. I mean, the, the, the provisional IRA's narrative that was that it was taking on the British state, that these were there were these brave patriots taking on the British state, and where in fact they had been taking on the Irish state as well. Obviously, they had a, a, a rule, a standing order number eight, which said that they were not to get involved in um, targeting uh, Irish security officers. But we know for a fact that they did. I mean, they they, they had at that stage killed uh, four Gardaí. The INLA had killed just the year previously had killed a couple of Gardaí. So there was a lot of that stuff going on. And and one thing that another reason that that there was such consternation in in Ireland was because the day after. Private Kelly and uh, Rakukar, the Sheehan, were killed. Um, the, the IRA de- detonated a bomb outside Harrods, uh, yes. killing six people. So those two events became very, very quickly synonymous in the public mind with the sort of depths of depravity that the IRA would stoop to at that stage. And you say that that also led to some sort of uh, burgeoning agreement between Margaret Thatcher, then obviously Prime Minister of Britain, and Gareth Fitzgerald Taoiseach here, in the sense that both had lost people at the same time and Thatcher with the with, with the fact that an Irish soldier and an Irish guard the recruit had been killed suddenly felt some sort of empathy, connection yeah. and empathy and that that led to the, the, the Anglo-Irish, Anglo-Irish agreement. agreement. Well it's, it, it's, it's a very significant uh, uh, detail in the book and that's why at the time Although we've kind of forgotten about now, Harrods and 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 Dorada Wood were kind of seen in, the, in, in they were son, became synonymous with each other very very quickly. And prior to what ha- had happened at Dorada Wood, Irish Taoiseach, including Charlie Hawhey, Jack Lynch, and and Gareth Fitzgerald, had a very difficult time explaining to Margaret Thatcher that the Provisional IRA was was also an enemy of the Irish state. But after Dorada Wood, there was no doubt in her mind. Uh, about this. And as a result of that, you have, um, now there's many a slip between cup and lip, but within two years, you have the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And Thatcher realises that that you're going to get nowhere without proper security cooperation. And this is why the events of Dorada Wood are actually a very significant development in, in what would become the peace process. Ronan, the book is brilliantly written and, you know, the descriptions you give of how Don Tidy was found, the gun battles that led to his release and then other events in Clare Morris. We won't get, get you to go into that. And, you know, that was that was probably a less glorious, uh, you know, outing for the defence forces here or the guards, I suppose. Yeah. But in, in terms of, let's say, after the aftermath, in terms of prosecutions, there was about six people prosecuted, I think, immediately after that, but not the people that were responsible for shooting the guard and the soldier. Yes, there were several prosecutions as a result of the um, of, of what happened at Dorada Wood. One of them was of John Kernan, who was the local person in Dorada Wood, who, who actually owned Dorada Wood. He got, a, I think it was a seven years sentence, five of them suspended. There was a guy called Michael Burke, who was one of the original kidnappers who kidnapped Don Tidy in Dublin. He got uh, a, a lengthy sentence. And there was a guy called Kelly, who was also prosecuted down in Kerry. He had uh, hired a car on behalf of the IRA for the kidnapping. So, but these were essentially peripheral characters in the saga. There has never been a prosecution in relation to the kidnapping of Don Tidy in Dorada Woods, nor for the murder of Sheehan and uh, Kelly. You say there hasn't been a prosecution. There was an attempted prosecution of Big McFarlane, yeah. and the, that first came before the courts in 1998. 
what was it that 15 years after the events led to Big McFarlane being prosecuted? Well, Big McFarlane was uh, one of the maze escapees. He had been jailed for life in 1976 for the Bayardo Bar massacre in which he and three IRA volunteers had shot up basically a, a loyalist pub on the Shankill Road and detonated a bomb, killing five people. He had been in... J- jail. Uh, in 1983 he escaped with the uh, Maze Escapees. And he was famously the officer commanding yeah. during the hunger yes, strikes. Yes, he was, he was the officer right? commanding during the, the hunger strikes, yes, as well. So he was quite a, a, a big cheese in sort of, in the Maze prison politics at the time. In 1998 he was uh, released early. This is before, it should be said, the, the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed in April uh, of that year. But there had been a number of prisoner releases prior to that as sort of confidence building exercises, including him. He had served approximately, um, well, he had been in jail from 1976, but he had been out after he escaped the maze until until he was arrested in Amsterdam in 1986, along with Jerry Kelly. So in 1998, he was boarding a bus. He was on his way from Dublin to back to Belfast, where uh, Wingardi got on a bus outside Dundalk and arrested him and charged him with the unlawful kidnapping of Don Tidy. And this uh, ended up in a 10-year saga in which essentially the, the case against him collapsed in 2008 as a result of... Can, um, we, can, we, can you take us through that, Ronan? Because evidence went missing, crucial evidence went missing. Well, in 1998, I mean, it, 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 was, it, was, a, a, it was a very, very long saga. Uh, essentially, the, the state's evidence was based on their belief that they had his uh, fingerprints relating to items that were found at the... Uh, uh, in Dorada Wood, which was basically a cooking pot and a carton of milk, which had the date, ironically enough, of the 16th of December in 1983. And this uh, case went to went to court, uh, but immediately there was two successive appeals, uh, one both of which went to both the High Court and the Supreme Court. The problem was the kernel of the state's evidence was these uh, fingerprints, but the items involved had been removed from storage in the Phoenix Park and they couldn't be found. When, when had they last been seen? Uh, well, apparently the last time they had been seen was in 1993. This is, uh, there was some evidence given in the court case that they had been there in 1993, but between 93 Three in 1998, they had gone missing. Now, cock up or conspiracy? You don't. Sure. We don't know who got rid of them or why it happened. Apparently, the storage facility in question was turned into a, a library. So they were. Um, they, they just went missing. But um, it was it was the state's case basically that you didn't need the evidence themselves. You didn't need the items themselves to prosecute the case because you had the finger. You the, had the photographs. The of photographs. The fingerprints yeah. And, the photographic evidence. Yes. And and this is um, no. I'm I'm talking to an audience who knows this better than me. But you don't. You don't bring, you, you know, if there's if there are fingerprints on a door that are germane to a case, you don't bring the door into court, right? I mean, you you use the you, you use the fingerprint evidence, and you say, is this, you know, Joe Bloggs's fingerprints, and then the you give them to the defence solicitor, and he examines them, and so on and so forth. But this went back and Mark forward. Mark looks horrified here, Ronan. <laughs> <But, clears throat> well, certainly, he needs the real thing. Uh, certainly, you would often make make arrangements <laughs> for the defence to uh, have their own inspection, but yeah. and, and you certainly need to be satisfied with the procedures that were used. But yeah, I mean, but the, but the argument they made obviously was that the, that once the copy had been made by a reliable fingerprint yeah. examiner, presumably, then then the, they they could rely on that for. for 
the and that worked in the Supreme Court, didn't it? Yeah, Adrian I, Hardy would yeah, be so, the presiding judge. So, so they they the, the case went to the Supreme Court, and um, Adrian Hardyman said that uh, you know that there was sufficient evidence for the for the case to go ahead, and also said said that McFarlane hadn't given a sufficiently credible account of his whereabouts between 1983 and 1986 uh, when he was recaptured and brought to the maze. So the trial was given a go ahead in 2006, and then another case was brought this time again to the to the High Court and to the Supreme Court where again uh, um, McFarland's uh, lost and the case went ahead in, And this was uh, on the grounds of delay is Yes, that right? that's yeah. right uh, it went ahead in uh, June the 11th 2008 It should be said that the Supreme Court judges agreed there had been an, uh, a delay but they didn't think it had been an unreasonable one so the case went ahead then on the 11th of June. Now there was two, as, as one of the prosecuting barristers said, there was two wings to their, their case. I mean, they were like a bird flying with two wings. The one was the fingerprint evidence, but the other was uh, a, critically a confession that McFarlane is said to have made in Dundalk prison where he says, I'm, you know I was there, but I'm not going to tell you anything. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. I can give you the, the direct quote, but he said, basically, you know I was here, but don't ask me to say anything about it. And, um, and just, this, just, just to interrupt you there, Ron, this is fantastic. The detail is incredible and it's incredible in the book. But this was the special criminal court, you know, so it was three courts. The presiding judge was Judge Paul Butler at the time. And for the prosecution was the late Edward Common. And defending McFarlane was our colleague Hugh Hartnett. Yes. And essentially, that was the issue. This was this evidence that had been recorded or taken down in Dundalk Garda Station. The so-called admission from Big McFarlane was that admissible? Yes, that's the question. So, so the exact quote was, "I was there. You can prove that, but I will not talk about it." And then he later said, "I'm prepared for the big one." And under cross-examination from Edward Coleman, uh, senior counsel for the G DPP. McFarlane actually denied it ever or uttered those words in Dundalk Garda Station and uh, he says I did not my lord so that was that was the central uh, part of the evidence but crucially the trial judge uh, I believe that the um, evidence that was that he gave that, that this admission that he had that was he allegedly made in Dundalk Garda Station had had not been recorded wasn't uh, wasn't done under the procedures that were available in 1998 and that the that the actual interview date itself hadn't been um, uh, the the date hadn't been recorded either so once that evidence was struck out the second part of the evidence couldn't couldn't fly either so the prosecution case collapsed and. Uh, McFarlane was a free man and he eventually sued the state uh, for uh, the delay in the prosecution and in 2010 he was awarded 15,000 euros. 15,000 euros. And, and a curious little thing, only a small, I suppose a trite issue, but you you make the point in the book that when he when he was before the, the Special Criminal Court, every time he was asked a question, he replied, he referred to the judge as my lord, which was highly unusual for people from the Republican tradition. Well, no, they didn't. It was only in the in the 1980s that they were forced really to recognise the Irish courts. Before that, they wouldn't recognise the courts, but then the judges were just handing them down draconian sentences as a result of that. So they decided to, um, you know, be but a little it, bit more emollient. But, but effectively, because of the ruling of inadmissibility of the evidence of the, the, the so-called confession, I suppose we yeah. should say, Basically, Edward Common and I think Fergal Foley was the was the yeah, junior counsel in that right, case. Yeah. They basically went in and said, "Look, the the, the state can't advance its case." Wasn't yeah, that they it, were basically? offering no further evidence, and that was it. 
really. Okay. And uh, so he, he, he was the free man. Okay. And Ronan, can I just bring you to, as we mentioned at the start, you're a proud Leitrim man. And in the book, you make a lot about Ballinamore. Yes. And I know Tommy is actually from Ballinamore. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I, I wondered that this kind of linger with you as a young man growing up, we were about the same age, would have been yeah. early teens in, yeah. in, the, in the 1980s. This kind of association with Ballinamore because there was a celebrated or very famous uh, Today Tonight program that was subsequently recorded, right. which I remember well, which I remember well. Anybody who's seen it remembers it well, and that's the problem. So, Do you remember uh, it, Mark? No, I don't, you don't, you no. didn't see that Brendan O'Brien. But the famous scene, go, go, will you tell us about the famous scene outside the church? So there was a famous scene outside the church in which Brendan O'Brien, who was the doyen of sort of Irish broadcast uh, journalism at that stage, he had been there in Dorado Wood before um, Christmas. He decided to go in early January. He had a lot of questions that he wanted to answer. For instance, why did these guys manage to escape the so-called Ring of Steel, as it was known at the time with all the Garthi and, and army personnel that had been around? But anyway, the other thing he wanted to find out is whether or not um, there was residual support for the provisional IRA in uh, Balnamore or in Leitrim. So he goes to Coraleehan Church. Now, bear in mind, Coraleehan Church is actually outside Balnamore. It's five miles outside Balnamore. And this isn't a minor point. It's actually a major point because Balnamore itself is quite a conservative town. It's, it's, it's very Fine Gael. It's very, um, it's, 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 it's a typical Irish country town. Um, whereas the hinterlands around it were, 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 were much more Republican. And that's where John Joe McGurl would have got most of his support from. But anyway, they went to Corleone Church, which is the closest church. It's basically at the back of Dorada Wood. And Brendan O'Brien had one question for the, the people involved. If you knew that Don Tidy was being hidden in the woods, would you inform the Gardaí to which every single person said no comment or as it was at no the time no comment yeah no comment to make no comment and to it make was, uh, this it, became like this was the the, the phrase that, that it just circulated in us Ireland for years. I mean, it, us dubs were all saying it yeah, as well you know it was it was funny because I was in school in Longford at the time and I was my maths teacher at the time and he says to me one day he says McGreevy I suppose Mr McGreevy that'd be no comment and of course I didn't know what he was talking about <laughs> but, uh, but I, I subsequently yeah. found out and of course there was a famous song at the time that Christy Moore recorded called The Ballad of Balnamore, which everybody in Leitrim knew. It's Leitrim's a far, funny place, or it's a strange and a troubled land. All the men are in the IRS, or all the women are in common a man. So, I mean, people are making a joke of it, but obviously it's, it's a very serious matter. Yes. Uh, but we go into this in, in a great and that's, deal. Of, that's what I want to. So, that is kind of, as, as, as I say, you guys, sons of Leitrim. Yeah. Uh, it's part of writing this book, and it is an incredible piece of history, Ronan. So, you know, but it's almost a sort of a social commentary on Leitrim and kind of retro respectively addressing an association that was given to that part of Leitrim all those years ago that you and Tommy don't feel as merited. Yeah, absolutely. And I can understand from an outsider's point of view why they would draw some conclusions that Leitrim was a very Republican county at the time. In fact, it wasn't. I mean, there's no denying that there was a, a, a significant number of people who were prepared to to help the provisional IRA, but that didn't make it a Provo County. I mean, Sinn Féin only received 5% of the vote in Leitrim in the 1981 general election. Um, John Joe McGurl failed to get Joe McDonald, one of the kidnappers, or sorry, one of the, um, uh, the hunger strikers elected in 1981, despite bringing his, his soon-to-be widow around um, the county to try and drum up support. 
it. So, I mean, the county was unfairly portrayed. But I'll just say one thing as well. The, uh, Brendan O'Brien also went to the town of Ballinamore and a lot of people were very, very afraid to talk. And particularly, they were afraid to condemn the IRA. And except one guy, a guy called Brian Toulon, who was a solicitor, yes. uh, Gabriel Toulon's uh, very long-established solicitor's, solicitor's firm in Ballinamore, uh, he condemned the IRA and said that local people needed to stand up to them. As a result of that, the windows of the solicitor's office, every single one of the windows, front windows was smashed a couple of nights after that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It, it is an incredible episode in Irish history. Ronan, you tell it brilliantly. Yourself and Tommy, you tell it brilliantly. The detail is is fantastic. Uh, I you, thoroughly enjoyed it's probably it's probably not the right word but it is the right word it's so well written I really enjoyed going over the story that I knew so well all those years ago and the retrospective on Leitrim I found particularly interesting and what you had to say about your county and and you know the intimidation that occurred at that 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 period of time and you know we're we're a long way away from that period of time now but it should never be forgotten, I think. No, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's very important that it's never forgotten. I mean, there, there is a memorial to John John McGurl in Balnamore. There's also a, a memorial walk, would you believe, which is part of the Balnamore Family Festival every year. So, I mean, his side of the aisle, so to speak, uh, doesn't forget it, forget about it, but it's time the people of Leitrim stood up. And what Tommy and I would love to see emerging as a result of this book and as a result of the 40, 40th anniversary commemorations is uh, a memorial to Kelly and Sheehan yes, in our county. Killed. Absolutely. Ronan, I, I don't know how we followed that with a question, but it sounds a little bit trite, doesn't it, Mark? I, I, I think, think we'll ask it anyway. Give it, give it a lash, actually. go on, yeah, give it yeah, a yeah, lash. Yeah. Well, we, well, the question we always ask our guests, do you have a book or a film or other work of art that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? With a legal theme? Not necessarily, but uh, some. But uh, as uh, there tend to be people with a legal interest listening. So, well, I love Twelve Angry Men, right. and I love the way that, that person who stands out from the consensus and with the sheer force of his logic and the sheer force of his argument is able to turn around everybody else who has taken for granted um, what happened. I, I have watched that movie many times and I think there are great lessons for us uh, uh, out of it. I hope you've well, also think, watched the Tony Hancock uh, spoof of it as well. <laughs> I haven't, but it's <laughs> definitely worth it. I was going to say, Mark, you have a picture of Henry Fonda on your wall, don't you? You have a little <laughs> look at it and kind of genuflect as you, as you leave. Ronan, thank you very much for coming no, in. I have so Peter enjoyed this interview and it thank is so informative much. and I'm giving a huge recommendation to your book. And just give me the full title again. It's published it's, by Penguin. It's called The Kidnapping, a Hostage a desperate manhunt and a bloody rescue that shocked Ireland. Ronan, thank, you, thank you for being a guest on the Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, author Ronan McGreevy, for coming in and telling us about his book, The Kidnapping, a fascinating story from the 1980s, early 1980s in Ireland and a a gripping interview, Mark. Yeah, and it's sort of a reminder of of just how difficult the the troubles were, not just north of the border, but also in this part of the country. Yes, no, absolutely. So before we go, I'd like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and also to Lee Brennan, who's done such a fabulous job on recording this show and the Dublin Podcast Studios, where we broadcast from. So from me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. 
Visit decisis.ie to find out more.